This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. In this presentation, Dr. Craig debates Dr. Shelley Kagan on the question, is God necessary for morality? For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I want to thank the Veritas Forum for inviting me, and I want to thank uh, Bill Craig for agreeing to this discussion, this debate. The topic uh, for tonight's debate is whether God is necessary for morality. Is God necessary for morality? I'm going to be arguing that uh, a belief in God or the existence of God is not necessary for morality. I'm at a bit of a handicap in doing this. Uh, I spoke to one of my colleagues, another moral philosopher, gave him the topic, is God necessary for morality? And his answer was, well, of course not. Now, I don't think the issue is quite as open and shut and black and white as that, but it, it does suggest, it does reveal, I suppose, a, a common outlook among moral philosophers that, that I share that people have been doing moral philosophy without appeal to God for thousands of years at the same time that they've also been doing moral philosophy that does appeal to God. It's not at all obvious to those of us who uh, take a secular approach to doing moral philosophy what the problem is supposed to be. So I'm going to try to anticipate what some of the difficulties that uh, Bill Craig will be raising and m maybe that's unfair. I don't mean to be saddling him with objections that he doesn't raise or of course maybe I will be raising objections that he will go on to raise and he'll do a better job of it. So I may not get it quite right, but what I'll try to do is sketch a little bit about where I think a plausible account of morality might be that doesn't make use of the appeal to God, and try to answer some objections that one might raise against it. Second preliminary remark uh, is I'll no doubt typically talk about, slip into talking about what the atheist might say or the atheist might believe or an atheist approach to moral philosophy, and that's a bit of a misnomer because I'm describing a view that's completely available to theists as well. And calling it an atheist view, I simply mean it's a view that does not make use of uh, the appeal to God. It's not theistic, it is atheistic in that, in that sense. Uh, and it's not necessarily limited to those who deny the existence of God. Let me start by uh, putting aside a question that may be of interest to some of you, uh, and if it does come up in the question period, I'm happy to address it at greater length, but one thing one might worry about in, in asking whether or not uh, morality requires existence of God is whether people could act morally if uh, there is no God or if they didn't believe in God, whether moral motivation or moral behavior presupposes uh, in some way belief in, in a deity. Um, I, I certainly hope that it's apparent to every person in this audience that the answer to that question is certainly not. That is to say, atheists, and here I do mean atheists in the more narrow sense, Sense, people who deny the existence of God are just as capable of acting morally as anybody else. They're just as capable of acting immorally as anybody else. Theists, at any rate, don't have any kind of monopoly on uh, moral behavior. And I'm, I'm completely confident that uh, Bill will agree about that. It's, I think, such a non-issue that, I have, as I say, I'm going to say nothing more about it. The more interesting question, uh, there are several questions one might pursue, but the one I'll be focusing on, uh, I take to be perhaps the most interesting question, is whether or not we need God for there to be 
morality, for that it be a genuine difference between right and wrong. Here we think of God not as the, the motivator for moral behavior, but rather God as the source or the author or the ground of morality, its basis. And so the question I'll be focusing on is whether or not there can be a secular non-theistic basis for morality, and I believe the answer to that is yes. Now, I could get off at this point, uh, except, of course, again, I don't think there's going to be any difference of opinion between uh, Bill and me on the question, do non-theists believe in morality? Of course we all believe in morality. It's whether or not there could really be something. Am I, as an atheist, entitled to uh, talk about right and wrong as something that genuinely exists without having God? So that's the question I'm going to focus on, not whether you know, people talk this way, whether the atheists talk this way, but whether they are, there's some logical difficulty about their talking that way. So what I'm going to do is very quickly sketch an outline of a view about ethics that I find congenial. It's not at all original to me. I don't in any way mean to suggest it's the only kind of outline one could accept as an atheist trying to explain what morality is all about, but it'll give you an illustration of, I think, a fairly plausible approach, or so it seems to me. And then I'll raise some deeper questions about it. So here's the basic idea. Right and wrong is a matter of whether or not your behavior hurts people or fails to help them. So, which is you know, wrong action is action that hurts somebody um, or fails to help them in the relevant circumstances. And right action is basically a matter of those behaviors that uh, refrain from hurting people and do provide help. So once we've got this basic idea in place, it's pretty natural to see how the more familiar rules of ordinary common sense morality uh, fall out from that. We have an explanation as to why it is that you shouldn't lie because lying hurts people, why you shouldn't commit murder, why you shouldn't rape because rape hurts the victims uh, of rape, why you have to aid the needy, uh, why slavery is wrong, uh, and why you need to clothe the naked and feed the hungry. Uh, in all these ways, these behaviors are more wrong or right uh, because of their connection with harm and failure to help. Now, there's a lot of details that would need to get worked out. Uh, I think for tonight's purposes, they're not likely to be all that important. Uh, there are, uh, let me just mention that, of course, it's important to get clear that there's a variety of ways that people can be hurt. Uh, there's not just physical harm, but there's emotional harm, and there's uh, assaults on somebody's autonomy, uh, and you can fail to respect them in a variety of ways. Uh, I don't think I need to pursue that, so unless it comes up, I won't say more about that. And the second point is that, of course, to say that you can't ever harm is a bit of a simplification. There are going to be cases in which one would have an adequate justification for harming somebody else. Uh, for example, in cases of self-defense against a deliberate aggressor. Uh, there's a great deal of work in contemporary moral philosophy about what these exception cases are, what are the adequate justifications for harming or failing to help. Uh, and again, although I'm happy to go there, I don't think we need to, so I won't say more about it unless it comes up. Now, what I, that, that's the nutshell of the, of the moral theory that I believe in, and clearly I didn't say anything about God, and so it seems to me I'm entitled to say that uh, I believe in morality, I'm entitled to believe in morality, and the question I only want to ask at this point is, why would anybody think otherwise? Well, so here's a worry that one might have. We might ask, not do, do I believe in this sort of thing, but are these things really wrong on the atheist view that I've just sketched? Or is it just a matter of opinion? 
Now that's tricky. Of course, you know, we're going to be arguing about whether or not God's necessary for morality, what shape morality has, and so forth and so on. And all of that, in some sense, is just a matter of opinion. But I take it the, the, the deeper question is, is there a fact of the matter as to who's right? Now, just as there's a fact of the matter as to whether or not there is a God and what that God is like, I take it there's a fact of the matter uh, with regard to whether or not it's wrong to harm people, whether it's wrong to, to rape, for example. I think it's wrong to rape. I take this to not just be a matter of opinion. It's not as though if I thought otherwise, rape would be okay, or if everybody thought otherwise, rape would be okay. Rape is wrong, full stop. So at least if you're worried about whether there could be genuine morality where there are facts of the matter, then on an atheist account, I'm inclined to think, well, of course there can. We might wonder, what makes it wrong? And the answer is, well, it's wrong because, for example, rape is wrong because it harms the victim. You might ask instead, what do we mean in saying that it's wrong to rape? Now, this is a controversial matter, and not all moral philosophers agree about the ingredients that we need to build into the basic definition of right and wrong. But roughly, I take it that as, a, as a, at least a first pass, the thought is something like to believe in morality as a genuine objective uh, state of affairs is to believe that there are reasons to act morally, to help others, and to avoid harming them, uh, and that these reasons don't depend on the particular desires or goals you happen to have. It's not as though if you happen to care about truth, justice, and the American way, then, then you've got a reason to act morally. No, everybody has these reasons. These reasons are overriding, to use philosophers' jargon, they're categorical reasons. So when I say that it's an objective fact that rape is wrong, what I'm saying is there's this kind of overriding, strong, categorical reason not to harm people in this way. And that's not up to me to make it so, it's just so. Now, we might ask, is there a deeper account that can be offered about where, where these reasons come from or, or what makes them so or, what, or, the, or the, the, the basic rules of morality, what their ultimate foundation or basis is? And I want to say that secular atheist philosophers disagree about that point. Some are, as we might call them, non-foundationalists. They say, well, we can state the various moral rules, keep your promises, tell the truth, uh, don't tell lies, uh, uh, don't hurt people, help the needy. And if we want, we can boil these rules down into a simpler set of rules. I've suggested don't harm, do help. But there may be nothing at all deeper to be said about what makes those rules the rule, what makes those rules the valid rules. It's just an objective fact about reality that there are these categorical reasons. There are reasons to behave in certain ways versus other. So that's not just a matter of opinion. There are facts about what there are reasons to do. And these may be among the reasons that are, there's nothing deeper to say. But there are also philosophers who believe there is something more to say. And again, unsurprisingly, different philosophers will disagree about what that deeper story looks like. Let me give a very quick sketch of one such story. I think it's not bad as far as it goes. Ultimately, I think there's even more to say, but that would take us a rather long time to say that more. So let me just give you the quick sketch. It's a view that, it's a version of the view that's uh, known as contractarianism. The thought is that the moral rules are the rules that we would give to one another 
to govern our interactions with one another, the rules that we would agree to if we were to set about trying to settle on a bunch of rules to govern our interactions under the assumption that we were perfectly rational. Nobody wants to follow rules that people accept because of mistakes in their reasoning. So imagine us, but soup ourselves up to be reasoning perfectly, perfectly rational beings would agree to various rules to govern their interactions. And the, the rules that they agree to are the terms of morality. Now there's different ways of running this contractarian thought. Uh, one version of it, which I have some sympathies to, adds an extra twist. The reasoning needs to take place behind a so-called veil of ignorance. The thought is, I'm not going to know while I'm engaged in this hypothetical bargaining session what my actual position in society is. Uh, I won't be able to try to rig things in favor of white males because I won't know that I'm a white male. So I argue from behind this veil of ignorance about my actual identity. So that's the, that's the basic thought. So here we have a kind of deeper story. Where do the moral rules come from? They are the rules we would give to ourselves to govern our behavior with one another insofar as we were perfectly rational. Is this, does this capture a notion of objectivity for ethics? Seems to me the answer is yes. There's a fact of the matter about what it would be rational for us to agree to in terms of these rules. One might wonder, are, is, is the output of this uh, hypothetical imaginary uh, bargaining session, are the moral rules necessary? Maybe that's another feature we're looking for in trying to genuinely get morality as opposed to merely the illusion or appearance of morality. And the answer to that is yes, I, I believe they, they are necessary. Now, if you're a non-foundationalist, if you don't think there is a deeper story of the contractarian sort that I sketched or some other deeper story that other moral philosophers have sketched, if you're a non-foundationalist, you might just stop it right here. You might say, to say that murder is wrong is to say that there's a categorical reason not to murder. And this isn't a contingent truth, it's a necessary truth. It's a truth that obtains, as philosophers like to put it, in all possible worlds, that murder would be wrong. If we do go the contractarian route, then we instead might put our necessity a little bit deeper. We might say something like, the moral truths are necessary, but their truth is itself explained in terms of the social contract. And that in turn is explained in terms of the fact that there are certain truths about reasoning. And these are necessary truths. It's a necessary fact that perfectly rational beings would reason about what kinds of rules they wanted to give to one another in such and such a way. So I think we can get the necessity of morality as well. Here's a rather different objection that might get raised. We have the thought that morality involves commandments. We have the thought that morality involves requirements. We talk about moral laws. So sometimes it's suggested that where there's a commandment, there's got to be a commander. Where there's a law, there's got to be a law giver. Where there's a requirement, there's got to be a requirer. Who plays the role of commander, lawgiver, requirer? Well, it's got to be God. And so it turns out if we're really going to have the notion not just of moral reason to behave in this way or that way, but rather moral requirements to behave in one way rather than another way, then we need uh, to appeal to God after all, to be the law giver. 
This is an argument that's been proposed by various theistic philosophers. Indeed, this, this very argument's been embraced by some atheistic philosophers who said, yeah, you know, uh, talk of more requirements does presuppose a lawgiver. Now that I no longer believe in God, uh, I believe there are no moral requirements. Now, I'm not myself inclined to go that way. I'm perfectly prepared to talk about moral requirements. I think it's a completely appropriate thing to do. In fact, it would be inappropriate, it would be just simply mistaken, full stop, to give up talk about moral requirements. So the question I want to push a little bit is, is it really really true that requirements require a requirer. That's a mouthful. And I'm inclined to believe the answer to that is actually no. Let's take an example of a requirement outside the moral domain. I suppose that when we are engaged in reasoning on a, about th belief matters, th theoretical reasoning, uh, it's a requirement of appropriate reasoning uh, that you not contradict yourself. People sometimes talk about the law of non-contradiction. I take this to be a requirement of rationality that you not contradict yourself. Now, should we similarly conclude that since there's a requirement, there's a law of non-contradiction, there must be a law giver. There must be some cosmic logician uh, who commands us not to contradict ourselves. Doesn't seem to me to be so. I mean, I can imagine that somebody does say that, but I don't myself feel the force of thinking if there's a law of non-contradiction, that is just to say that it's a claim that it's just fundamentally irrational to contradict yourself, I don't see any reason to conclude from that that there must be some cosmic logician laying down that law. As I put it, the logic of the word requirement does not actually entail the existence of a requirer. That at least seems to me the most natural thing to say about the law of non-contradiction. If we want, we can say, I don't think any harm in saying that reason itself requires that you not contradict yourself. And that's fine. I don't have any problem talking that way. That just, of course, doesn't, I mean, it's, it's talking about reason in a somewhat personified fashion, but no harm done as long as we understand there doesn't actually have to be a person who laid down the law of non-contradiction. Well, similarly then, I want to say that with regard to the various moral requirements, uh, we don't need a lawgiver for them to be genuine requirements. If we want, we can say, in fact, it seems to me a perfectly legitimate thing to say, that reason requires that we act in accordance with reasons. There are, it lays down these various categorical reasons not to harm people, to aid them. Uh, and so uh, we can personify reason in that way. But all we just mean, I think, is that there are these compelling, decisive, objective, categorical reasons to behave in certain ways and not behave uh, in other ways, or to reason in various ways. So I myself am skeptical of the claim that commandments require a commander, or requirements require a requirer, or that law requires a lawgiver. So, some of you may be more sympathetic to that suggestion than I am. Indeed, some of my colleagues are more sympathetic to that suggestion uh, than I am. It's important to bear in mind that although I have the particular views I'm laying uh, down here, it's not as though all non-theistic philosophers think about these issues in exactly the same way. If you brought up four of us, you'd probably get four different stories about how to ground morality in a secular fashion. 
some of my colleagues are more sympathetic to the thought that moral, talk of moral requirement really does entail that there be somebody who's commanding us to behave accordingly. And then we might ask, well, if that's so, who could it be besides God? And the answer I want to give on behalf of those of you and my colleagues who are sympathetic to the suggestion, the answer should be all of us. We, the members of the moral community, are the ones who are laying down these requirements. That, that idea is especially, I think, a natural fit if we accept the contractarian theory that I was sketching, albeit too quickly, sketching in my earlier remarks. If we think of the rules of morality as emerging from this hypothetical session in which we ask ourselves, how shall we behave towards one another, except we face this question hypothetically in, uh, in the mode of perfect rationality, what would perfectly rational beings uh, uh, lay down as these rules? But these are rules that nonetheless we are giving to one another then when somebody, and, and we enter into these rules freely because we see that it makes sense for us to reach these agreements, you can see why it would be rational for us to agree to rules requiring telling the truth, laying out, uh, you know, forbidding lying, forbidding murder, and so forth. Then these are rules that we give to one another. And consequently, if somebody breaks those rules, they're not upholding their part of the social contract. And as such, the rest of us who are indeed limiting our behavior in keeping with this agreement, we can appropriately and with due authority turn to the person who's acting immorally and saying, you shouldn't behave that way. You're not keeping up your end of the bargain. So if you think there needs to be somebody who's demanding of us that we act morally, the answer could be, well, there is. Each one of us is demanding of everybody else, and indeed demanding of ourselves as well, that we act morally. So if you think requirements need a requirer, the answer could be, well, here's a requirer. It's the members of the moral community. Well, obviously, there's a great deal more that needs to be said about all of these subjects, but I've used up my allotted 20 minutes. But I, but I hope you can at least see the, the outlines of an approach, there are alternatives, an approach which offers us a, a fairly plausible, I think, account of what morality is all about, under which the rules of morality are not an illusion, they're not a mere matter of opinion, they are indeed a matter of objective fact. Uh, and consequently, I'm inclined to think that moral philosophers are of an atheistic inclination are completely entitled to believe that we can have morality without God. Thank you. Thank you very much. I didn't realize it had been that many Veritas Forum events over these years. Uh, good evening and thank you very much. I am delighted to have the invitation from the Veritas Forum to participate in the dialogue tonight. And I want to say it's a tremendous privilege to be sharing the podium with so eminent uh, an ethicist as Shelley Kagan. The question before us this evening is, is God necessary for morality? Notice what the question is not asking. We are not asking whether belief in God is necessary for morality. No one in tonight's discussion is arguing that in order to live a moral life, you need to believe in God. Rather, the question, as Shelley emphasized, is whether God is necessary for morality. 
And the answer to that question, I think, obviously depends on what you mean by morality. If by morality you mean simply a certain pattern of social behavior prevalent among human beings, then obviously this sort of behavior could still go on even if it turned out that God does not exist. God isn't necessary in order for human beings to exhibit certain patterns of social behavior, which they call acting morally. But if by morality you mean that certain things are really good or evil, that certain actions are unconditionally obligatory or impermissible, then many atheists and theists alike agree that God is indeed necessary for morality. In the absence of God, morality turns out to be just a human convention or illusion. The same patterns of social behavior might go on without God, but it would be a delusion to think that such behavior has any objective moral significance. Accordingly, I'm going to argue that God is necessary for morality in at least three distinct ways. Without God, objective moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability would not exist. Let's look at the first point. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Now, when we talk about moral values, we're talking about whether something is good or evil. To say that there are objective moral values is to say that something is good or evil independently of whether anybody believes it to be so. To say, for example, that the Holocaust was objectively evil is to say that it was evil even though the Nazis who carried it out thought that it was good and it would still have been evil even if the Nazis had won World War II and succeeded in brainwashing or exterminating everybody who disagreed with them so that everyone believed the Holocaust was good. My first claim is that if there is no God, then moral values are not objective in that sense. Traditionally, objective moral values have been based in God who is the highest good. He is the locus and paradigm of moral value. God's own holy and loving nature supplies the absolute standard against which all actions are measured. He is by nature loving, generous, just, faithful, kind, and so forth. And thus, if God exists, objective moral values exist. But if God does not exist, what basis remains for objective moral values? In particular, why think that human beings would have moral worth? On the atheistic view, human beings are just accidental byproducts of nature, which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called the planet Earth, lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe in which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. On atheism, I can't see any reason to think that human well-being is objectively good. 
any more than insect well-being or dog well-being or monkey well-being. On a naturalistic view, moral values are just the byproduct of biological evolution and social conditioning. Just as a troop of baboons exhibit cooperative and even altruistic behavior because natural selection has determined it to be advantageous in the struggle for survival, so their primate cousins, Homo sapiens, have similarly evolved uh, behavior for the same reason. As a result of sociobiological pressures, there has evolved among Homo sapiens a sort of herd morality which functions well in the perpetuation of our species. But on an atheistic view, there doesn't seem to be anything that makes this morality objectively true. The philosopher of science, Michael Roos, reports, the position of the modern evolutionist is that humans have an awareness of morality because such an awareness is of biological worth. Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory." End quote. If we were to rewind the film of human evolution back to the beginning and start anew, people with a very different set of moral values might well have evolved. As Darwin himself wrote in The Descent of Man, if men were raised under precisely the same conditions as hive bees, there can hardly be a doubt that our unmarried females would, like the worker bees, think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers, uh, and mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters, and no one would think of interfering. For us to think that human beings are special and our morality objectively true is to succumb to the temptation of speciesism, that is to say an unjustified bias toward one's own species. The objective worthlessness of human beings on a naturalistic worldview is underscored by two implications of that worldview, materialism and determinism. Naturalists are typically materialists or physicalists who regard man as a purely animal organism. But if there is no mind distinct from the brain, then everything we think and do is determined by the input of our five senses and our genetic makeup. There is no personal agent who freely decides to do something. But without freedom, none of our choices is morally significant. They're like the jerks of a puppet's limbs, controlled by the strings of sensory input and physical constitution. And what moral value does a puppet or its movements have? Richard Dawkins' assessment of human worth may be depressing, but why, on atheism, is he mistaken when he says, there is at bottom no design, 
no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for being. If there is no God, then any basis for regarding the herd morality evolved by Homo sapiens as objectively true seems to have been removed. Take God out of the picture, and all you seem to be left with is an ape-like creature on a tiny speck of dust beset with delusions of moral grandeur. Secondly, if God does not exist, objective moral duties do not exist. Duties have to do with whether something is right or wrong. Now, you might think at first that the distinction between right and wrong is the same as the distinction between good and evil. But if you think about it, you can see that this is not the case. Duty has to do with moral obligation, with what I ought or ought not to do. But obviously, you're not morally obligated to do something just because it would be good for you to do it. For example, it would be good for you to become a doctor, but you're not morally obligated to become a doctor. After all, it would also be good for you to become a firefighter or a homemaker or a diplomat, but you can't do them all. So there's a difference between moral values and moral duties. Now, my claim is that if God does not exist, then it seems we have no objective moral duties. To say that we have objective moral duties is again to say that we have certain moral obligations regardless of whether we think that we do. Traditionally, our moral duties were thought to spring from God's commandments, such as the Ten Commandments. Far from being arbitrary, these commands flow necessarily from his moral nature. On this foundation, we can affirm the objective rightness of love, generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality, and condemn as objectively wrong selfishness, hatred, abuse, discrimination, and oppression. But if there is no God, what basis remains for objective moral duties? On the atheistic view, human beings are just animals, and animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a lion kills a zebra, it kills the zebra, but it doesn't murder the zebra. When a great white shark forcibly copulates with a female, it forcibly copulates with her, but it does not rape her, for there is no moral dimension to these actions. They are neither prohibited nor obligatory. So if God does not exist, why think that we have any moral obligations to do anything? Who or what imposes these moral duties upon us? Where did they come from? It's very hard to see why they would be anything more than a subjective impression ingrained into us by societal and parental conditioning. On the atheistic view, certain actions, such as incest or rape, may not be biologically and socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development have become taboo. They, they go against the social contract that uh, Shelley has imagined. 
But that does absolutely nothing to show that rape and incest is really wrong. Such behavior goes on all the time in the animal kingdom. On the atheistic view, the rapist who flouts the herd morality or the social contract is doing nothing more serious than acting unfashionably, like the man who flouts etiquette uh, by belching loudly at the dinner table. If there is no moral law given, then there is no objective moral law which we must obey. It's all a matter of social convention on a par with rules of etiquette. Thirdly, if God does not exist, then there is no basis for moral accountability. Traditionally, it's been held that God holds all persons morally accountable for their actions. Despite the inequities of this life, in the end, the scales of God's justice will be balanced. And thus, the moral choices that we make in this life uh, have an eternal significance. But if God does not exist, what basis remains for moral accountability? Even if there were objective duties and values under atheism, they seem to be irrelevant because there's no moral accountability. If life ends at the grave, then ultimately it makes no difference whether you live as a Stalin or as a Mother Teresa. As the Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky rightly said, if there is no immortality, then all things are permitted. Given the finality of death, it really does not matter how you live. The state torturers in Soviet prisons understood this all too well. Richard Wurmbrandt reports, the cruelty of atheism is hard to believe when man has no faith in the reward of good or the punishment of evil. There is no reason to be human. There is no restraint from the depths of evil which is in man. The communist torturers often said, there is no God, no hereafter, no punishment for evil. We can do what we wish. I have heard one torturer even say, I thank God in whom I don't believe that I have lived to this hour when I can express all the evil in my heart. He expressed it in unbelievable brutality and torture inflicted on prisoners. Given the finality of death, it really doesn't matter how you live. So what do you say to someone who concludes that we may as well just live as we please out of pure self-interest? You might say it's in your best self-interest to adopt a moral lifestyle. But clearly that's not always true. We all know situations where self-interest runs smack dab in the face of morality. Moreover, if you're sufficiently powerful, like a Ferdinand Marcos or a Papa Doc Duvalier or even a Donald Trump, then one can pretty much ignore the dictates of conscience and safely live in self-indulgence. Historian Stuart C. Easton sums it up well when he writes, there is no objective reason why man should be moral unless morality pays off in his social life or makes him feel good. There is no objective reason why man should do anything save for the pleasure it affords him. To believe then that God does not exist and that there is thus no moral accountability would be quite literally demoralizing 
For then we'd have to accept that our moral choices are ultimately insignificant, since both our fate and that of the universe will be the same regardless of what we do. By demoralization, I mean a deterioration of moral motivation. It's hard to do the right thing when that means sacrificing your self-interest or to resist temptation when desire is strong. And the belief that ultimately it doesn't matter what you choose or what you do is apt to sap one's moral strength and so undermine one's moral life. As Robert Adams observes, having to regard it as very likely that the history of the universe will not be good on the whole, no matter what one does, seems apt to induce a cynical sense of futility about the moral life, undermining one's moral resolve and one's interest in moral considerations. The absence of moral accountability from the philosophy of atheism thus makes an ethic of compassion and self-sacrifice a hollow abstraction. In sum, I think it's plausible that without God, there are no objective moral values, moral duties, or moral accountability. God is therefore vitally necessary to morality. Now, as I said, this is a conclusion which is accepted by a great many atheist philosophers, such as Nietzsche, Russell, and Sartre. Though the conclusion is a painful one, these thinkers believe that honesty compels them to face it squarely. The challenge confronting the atheist philosopher who continues to cling to objective moral values and duties after letting go of God is, I think, threefold. First, to explain what is the basis for objective moral values on atheism. In particular, what is the basis for the intrinsic value of human beings. Second, to explain what is the source of objective moral duties on atheism. What makes certain acts obligatory or forbidden if there is no moral lawgiver to command or prohibit them? Why is it wrong to harm other members of our species, to inflict harm upon others? Thirdly, to explain how on atheism ultimate moral accountability exists, or alternatively, to explain why it is not necessary to morality. These questions must, I think, be addressed if one is to maintain that God is not necessary to morality. We'll now have 10 minutes of questioning uh, between Dr. Craig asking Dr. Uh, Kagan okay. about his thoughts. Well, obviously a number of questions came up in my talk that would be pertinent to what you shared, Shelley. In your opening uh, address, you said right or wrong depends upon the uh, whether you hurt other people without justification. Um, and when asked, uh, are these really wrong, you answered yes. Why? Because it harms the victim. 
Now, I guess my difficulty is that on an, I certainly agree that it's wrong to harm people, obviously, but it's hard for me to understand on a naturalistic worldview, such as I described, why on the worldview of naturalism, inflicting harm upon other members of our species is really wrong. It seems to me that this happens all the time among other animals. And so why is it wrong peculiarly for human beings to inflict harm on each other? All right, so let's start with that. S suppose that uh, my three-year-old nephew walks into your house, takes some book off your shelf, and tears the pages out. He hasn't done anything wrong. Or three-year-old, probably old enough, he has done something wrong. Make him a year and a half. He hasn't done anything wrong. If I go into your house, tear some pages out of your book, I've done something wrong. What's the difference? Well, I'm capable of appreciating reasons for respecting your property that my one-and-a-half-year-old, this is hypothetical, one-and-a-half-year-old nephew doesn't doesn't have the capacity. Right? There are differences between people that allow me and you to think about our behaviors, to evaluate our behaviors, to see whether or not there are legitimate reasons for behaving as we do. Creatures that don't have that capacity don't have that capacity. It's precisely because they lack that capacity that makes no sense that the notion of right and wrong behavior gets no purchase. Lions can't reflect upon their behavior, so when they do it, it's not wrong. If you or I were to engage in that behavior, we can reflect upon that. We can recognize the reasons for not behaving that way. So I think the distinction is a fairly straightforward one, not a, not a deep mystery or a hard challenge for the naturalist to, to respond to. Okay, I think that's a, a good answer for why we wouldn't regard animals as moral agents who would be culpable for their acts. Um, but it seems to me that at best that answer would go to show that rationality or the ability to reflect rationally on things is a necessary necessary condition for moral behavior, but I don't see that that's a sufficient condition for moral behavior. It's still not clear to me why uh, it would be wrong for creatures who have considerably complex neurological systems uh, to inflict harm on each other on a naturalistic worldview in the struggle for survival. Okay, so the question you asked initially was, how can I explain why it's wrong for me to murder when it's not wrong for lions to murder? And to answer that question, all it takes is for me to point out a relevant difference between us, and you've just, I think, said, yeah, all right, so I managed to do that. If we now shift to the question, so what does it take for wrongness to enter the world above and beyond rationality? I think the answer might well be actually once we achieve a certain level of rationality, nothing more is taken, nothing more is needed. What, the reason it's objectively wrong for me to engage in murder is precisely because there is a reason for me not to do it, a reason that I'm capable of recognizing. And if you ask, what more does it take? The answer is, well, that, those are the basic ingredients right there. We can, we can refine it. I mean, we can, we can put a little icing on it if we'd like to make it. But in terms of the essentials, that's it. What there's reason for me to do depends on what kind of creature I am. Once I become the kind of creature in the evolutionary you know, 
process, once creatures evolve that are capable of stepping back from their actions, capable of reflecting about whether or not their behavior makes sense, whether it conforms to standards that they are themselves prepared to endorse, at that point, the machinery is in place. And at that point, there are reasons for me to behave in certain ways and to avoid other kinds of behavior. And if you ask, but what makes that wrong? You know, yeah, I'm still not clear well, as to look, why these beings suddenly achieve moral, intrinsic moral worth in virtue of having these complex nervous systems that enables them to have self-reflection and so forth. If you put it as complex nervous systems, it sounds pretty deflationary. Right. What's so special about having a complex nervous system? But of course, that complex nervous system allows you to do calculus. It allows you to do astrophysics. It allows you to write poetry. It allows you to fall in love. Put under that description, you ask, what's so special about humans from a naturalistic perspective? I'm at a loss to know how to answer that question. If you don't see why we'd be special and different from everything else uh, in creation, that because we can do poetry, we can write a novel, we can think philosophical thoughts, we can do calculus, and we can think about the morality of our behavior, I don't know what kind of answer could possibly satisfy you at that point. Well, Obviously, uh, uh, the kind of answer that I offered, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but can, 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 I, can, can I ask just to follow up on that because I mean I could I don't want to, I'm tempted to say I could play this game and that's unfair because of course it's not a game but I, I could pose the same kinds of questions to you perhaps I will you know in, in uh, ten minutes I, I, I could say look all right so God says you know you guys are really really special right. So, what did that, how, how does his saying it make us really special? But, but you see, he gave us a soul. How does our having a soul make us special? Whatever answer you give, you could always say, with regard to that, what's so special about that? At a certain point, you're just going to have to say, you know what? These features really do seem to me to be special. Insofar as it seems to me that our ability to communicate, to reflect, to love, to be creative, and consequently to shape our behavior with an eye towards how we're interacting with one another, these things strike me as remarkable yeah. ways in which we're special. I think that they strike all of us that way. And that's the difficulty, perhaps, I think, in, um, in uh, showing what I'm attempting to show is that we all do, I think, intuitively value one another. We value persons. We value poetry, creativity, and all of these things. I think we all agree that these are goods. I, the question is, though, on a naturalistic view, uh, why uh, think that these things are goods? It seems to me that there, you, you, you emphasize in your own book, on the limits of morality, the importance of having explanations and not cutting off the search for explanations too soon. And I wonder if you're not cutting off the search for explanations too soon by simply saying, well, I'm just going to regard uh, persons as intrinsically valuable, but without any kind of further grounding for that. Well, of course, I haven't claimed there is no further grounding for that. I, I gave you a sketch of the contractarian thought. Your attitude was, I don't find that a very compelling story. It doesn't seem to me to be the kind of thing that constitutes an adequate grounding. Yeah. I suppose these things are in the eyes of the beholder, and everybody here has got, is entitled to decide for themselves Certainly. what kind of answers uh, will, will be satisfactory or not. Well, let, let, me, yeah. let me ask you a different question. Then. Uh, one more. Oh, okay. Are, are you a determinist? Yes. And yet you still think that 
love is significant and human choices are yes, morally I, significant even though they're determined? So, so, to, so to give a piece of jargon to the, to the audience uh, that, that, that Bill will be familiar with, I'm a compatibilist. That is to say, I believe that one can combine determinism and free will. Uh, so absent free will, humans would lack the significance that we clearly have. But I believe that's compatible with determinism. Actually, am I a determinist? Who knows what quantum mechanics teaches us about whether or not determinism is true. But at least I believe that determinism could be true without in any way threatening my conviction that humans are special. Did you have a follow-up on that one? Well, I think you did. only to say that it, it, it just seems to me to rob moral choices of any sort of significance if, we, if we're determined to do it by the antecedent physical causes that lead up to the point of choosing and then, then cause our brains to react one way rather than another. It, I can't see how that could have any more moral significance than a tree growing a branch at a certain point in its development. Because you're a non, an incompatibilist. You don't yeah. believe determinism and free will. So this is a debate for another night. I mean, it's not that I think the truth of compatibilism is at all self-evident. Can you it, just explain what yeah, that term com means? Compatibilism is the view that there's no logical inconsistency between belief in determinism on the one hand, and the existence of free will on the other. They're compatible. Well, so I, that's so I don't, a little bit misleading, though. I mean, you need to explain what you mean by free will in that case, if well, everything's determined. It, well, what, what I was trying to do is simply give a quick definition. What I, remember, I said that this is a very, very as you know, yeah. it's a very, very complicated question. We would basically hijack the entire rest of the evening right. to start trying to... I was to, unclear on the terms myself. Right. So, so my thought was just that the plausibility of the compatibilist view that I hold, I don't take to be self-evident. I believe it takes philosophical argumentation for it. I, I, I completely agree that those drawn to incompatibilism, those drawn to the view that you can't have both deterministic physical laws and robust free will, will think if naturalism is true and the best science teaches us that determinism is true, itself uh, you know, a controversial question whether that's the best interpretation of our best science, then we'll lack free will. And then if free will is, is necessary for having special value, then we'll lack special value. But there's a, there's a lot of premises in, 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 before we get to the conclusion that naturalism doesn't uh, have space for this special value. And I reject several of those premises, which is why I'm not feeling uncomfortable uh, by the challenge uh, that Bill's raising. Well, let's turn the table, and now you'll ask Bill some questions. All right. So, so, so one of the things that you said in, in your opening remarks, well, you quoted uh, uh, several people. I think there was a long quote from Michael Roos yes. saying something like, um, if naturalism is true, if, if theism is false, then ethics is illusory. Uh, deeper meaning is illusory. I, this, not an exact quote, but, but, but those, I think those phrases were there. A and I found that an interesting slide, or so it seemed to me. Um, the move from ethics is illusory to deeper meaning is illusory. I, I think I want to concede that in the way you mean deeper meaning, I don't believe in deeper meaning. Because I think when you talk that way, you think for there to be, not that I have any trouble talking about meaning or even deep meaning, but when you talk that way, I think you're, ask, you're thinking, it's got to be meaning on a cosmic scale. That's where some of the points about accountability come in as well. Yes. 
So, I, I, fine, I believe that uh, humans are just creatures that evolved on this tiny little speck of dust. But I don't see how the denial of deeper meaning should give me any reason to think, therefore I'm committed to ethics as illusory. So perhaps you could explain that. Um, where that came in, I think, was with respect to moral accountability. Um, and the, yes, and also with regard to the significance of human beings. It, it seemed to me that on a naturalistic worldview, everything is ultimately destined to destruction in the heat death of the universe. As the universe expands, it grows colder and colder as its energy is used up. And eventually all the stars will burn out, all matter will collapse into dead stars and black holes, there will be no life, no heat, no light, only the corpses of dead stars and galaxies expanding into endless darkness. Uh, and in light of that end, it's, it's hard for me to understand how our moral choices have any sort of significance. There's no moral accountability. The universe is neither better nor worse for what we do. Um, that ultimately there isn't, uh, our moral lives become vacuous There's, because they don't have that kind of cosmic significance. I, I, I still need to have you explain that for me better because, again, it seems to me it's one thing to say it lacks eternal, cosmic, everlasting significance. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to say it lacks significance. In fact, to give one of your examples, you, you, you talked about, uh, again, I can't remember the source of this quote, but the, the torturers, was it Nazi torturers? Right, yeah. You say, you know, if, if, if theism isn't true, then it doesn't really matter. This strikes me as, I, I'm sorry, it's, I'm sure it's going to sound rude, but it strikes me as an outrageous thing to suggest. It doesn't really matter. Surely it matters to the torture victims whether they're being tortured. It, 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 it doesn't require that this makes some cosmic difference to the eternal significance of the universe for it to matter whether a human being is tortured. It matters to them. It matters to their family. It matters to us. So again, yeah. how do you move well, from the lack of eternal significance to the thought that if it doesn't have eternal significance, it can't have yeah, any significance. Because the, the victim, it obviously matters to him in the sense that he's in pain and, and, and agony. But ultimately, it doesn't matter that he was ever in pain and in agony. The, the whole thing just degenerates into utter meaninglessness and insignificance. I don't mean to suggest that the torture didn't do a bad thing to this person, but ultimately, it doesn't matter. It well, all ends up the same. Yes, but it all ending up the same isn't the same thing as, and so it doesn't matter what happens until we get there. And I, when I say, and it matters what the path is before we get to the end point, I don't merely mean subjectively it matters, it appears to matter, it matters to them, but it doesn't really matter. Well, that's what it but, seems to but, me. But, it just matters subjectively. But, but again, I just want to say, I don't understand how we get from if it doesn't objectively matter to the universe, or doesn't objectively matter on a cosmic scale, how do we get from that to, so it doesn't objectively matter at all? Well, remember... So, 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 so it's not a point about the nature of objective, it's the question is, why should we think objective value must be on the cosmic scale or not there at okay. all? Now, now, let's remember the argument. This concern arose in the third point about moral accountability. This wasn't in the first two points about objective moral values and duties. What I said was, with regard to the third point, even if objective moral values and duties exist, they become irrelevant because 
they're inconsequential. So my third point about moral accountability was simply to say on atheism, even if there are objective right and wrong and good and evil, uh, there's no moral accountability and so one might as well just live as he pleases and uh, might, might as well if, it, if by might as well means there's no reason to live one way versus the other unless it makes a difference on the cosmic scale it just seems to me that the same questions being to, to my ears begged yet again it matters perfectly there is an objective categorical reason not a matter of opinion there's a, a fact of the matter about the compelling overriding reason that you are irrational to disregard, even though in terms of the heat death of the universe it won't stop it, but for all that, there's an objective reason not to behave this way. Yeah, that would be to say you have an objective moral duty, and I, I, for the third point I was willing to grant that, but the question here is the deeper question about why adopt the moral point of view, and that can't be a moral answer because you're asking the question why adopt the moral point of view. I think the concern that I have in this third point is that on What's a... What's the answer that well, you believe you get well, well, a let, yeah. let me explain. I think on the third point that what I'm trying to say there is that on atheism or naturalism, that prudential value and moral value are on a collision course with each other. That what it's prudent for me to do is often in contrast or in conflict with what's moral for me to do. And prudence would seem to trump morality in terms of one's self-interest in virtue of the fact that it makes no difference how you choose. But on theism, where there is moral accountability, you can consistently make choices that go against your self-interest and sacrifice self-interest and prudence and in the, for the sake of the moral value and moral duty. Because precisely you'll get it back in the end, and so it's not really in the long term a self-sacrifice at all. That, that's the thought, yes? Well, that, that wasn't what I would, that wouldn't be the way I'd put it. It's not that... But, it, but, but, but that, that is the reason that, that you think you can resolve the conflict between prudence and self and, and morality because God makes it be the case that unless you right. act morally, your self-interest won't actually be furthered. That's right, how right. The, the solution yes, is. Yes, that's right. It, it, that they'll, they'll be in harmony with each other ultimately. So, 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 you're, so you're completely right. I don't believe they're in harmony. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I believe the only rational thing to do is to act prudently. On the contrary, I believe there's greater reason. This is, I'm sorry, this should be a form of a question, like Jeopardy. Put this in a form of question, shall yeah. we? <laughs> why, why not believe uh, that? Moral reasons outweigh prudential reasons. The, the, the mere fact that there's a conflict doesn't doesn't commit the naturalist to the claim that the prudential ones are the weightier ones. All right, but there is there is that conflict, and for many people, I, I think, as I said, this can have a demoralizing effect upon uh, a person because um, ultimately his moral choices make no difference either for himself or for the the good of the universe. And I, I suspect that this will be demoralizing in the way that Adams suggested it would. No doubt for some people it will be, but of course for some people there's a different kind of demoralizing that takes place with the belief in theism, isn't there? I mean, if we're just going to talk about what are some possible psychological effects, some people will act morally not out of the recognition of the objective values, but merely in hopes of getting into heaven and avoiding hell. There's something morally off about that right. as well. And yeah, so, I agree. So, so both sides face certain empirical questions about, you know, certain people may misread the implications of the view. Uh, that strikes me as a, as, yeah. a, as a standoff at best. I don't know. I, 
I'm not sure that the person who acts in self-interest has misread the implications of the atheistic worldview. That's because you've yet again assumed that if we're naturalists, we must assume that prudence, you know, either there are no moral reasons at all, or if there are, they're inferior in strength to prudential reasons. That doesn't seem to me to follow from naturalism at, what, at all. If we had more time, obviously we can only begin to scratch the surface of this, of this debate, if we had more time, I'd lay upon you my elaborate theory of the nature of practical reasoning, according to which prudential reasons are less significant than moral reasons. Well, this is a view that I think uh, is completely compatible with naturalism. The little imaginary dictator, I suppose, has acted wrongly and as such deserves punishment. So how can we justify the punishment? In terms of the rules of the social contract. What do we do? You know, we agree in the contract that if people break the contract, they'll be subject to penalty. What, what if he doesn't want to sign the contract? <laughs> so, look, no. He's outside the contract, so he's not bound by it. Well, the question is not what does, what does any given person in fact agree to. That's why I talked about what we would agree to insofar as we're imagining ourselves as being perfectly rational. As a perfectly rational being, that is to say, if you imagined a kind of souped up, cleaned up version of the dictator, it would be just as reasonable for him to sign the contract as for the rest of us. It's, it's, it's neither here nor there that he doesn't accept morality. He's still bound by it. We're all bound by it precisely because it would be reasonable for all of us to agree to its terms. Um, Dr. Kagan, you say that human reason leads to morality. Dr. Craig. Uh, Dr. Craig, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, oh, wrong pile. Uh, okay, I'm so confused. Okay. Um, Dr. Craig, do you think that without God there is no free will? Yes, I guess I, I would say that because it would seem to me that if God doesn't exist then human beings are just um, material objects um, and that what we call free choices are just the results of electrochemical reactions in our nervous system uh, and that therefore they're not genuinely free. So that was why I said one of the implications of naturalism is physicalism and as a result determinism and this seems to me to be just a, a, um, a clear reason for thinking that our moral choices are ultimately illusory and, and insignificant because they're like having a toothache. Uh, or like um, having hair grow, uh, there, there, there is no sense in which a personal agent freely chooses between A and not A and making a moral decision. So I guess I would say that. Um, Shelley, it, it seems like there are a, a lot of people are hung up on the Nazis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're bad. They're, they're objectively they're, bad. They're, Let's be clear about that. But it's, it's hard for them to, uh, it seems like, just based on the questions, it's hard for people to understand how we can objectively say they're bad when um, 
if they won, would they still be bad? If they were the ones kind of running the world and dictating morality, could, would they still be objectively bad in your view? Yes, the suggestion is not that it's a matter of a popularity poll or who wins the Second World War or which way history goes. It's, it's, it's a thought experiment. The social contract is a thought experiment and you ask yourself, what are reasonable terms to govern our behaviors with one another? And in trying to set up that thought experiment, you want to set certain background conditions. One background condition I mentioned was the veil of ignorance. You want to make sure you don't know whether you're one of the people who are, in fact, the winners in society or the losers in society. One of the conditions is you want to imagine the bargainers are rational because you don't want the rules that emerge to be an artifact of some mistake in reasoning. It's neither here nor there what the Nazis thought was acceptable. The question is just what, in fact, would be the terms of a contract agreed upon by perfectly rational bargainers. And the terms of those contracts, I think if we had more time, we could proceed to, to lay out the argument, are such that there'd be a prohibition against killing innocent people, which is, of course, exactly what the Nazis did. So what the Nazis did was violate the terms of the contract. And so, in fact, they were immoral whether or not they see it. Um, Dr. Craig, there seems to be uh, an issue with um, this idea of objective good, that, that uh, there have been numerous crimes in the history of humanity uh, perpetrated on, you know, in the name of religion. Right. Right. How do you grapple with that issue? I, I'd like to use religious examples of atrocities to help communicate to students the difference between objective um, good and objective evil. Um, if you say that there is no objective moral value or moral duties, then you have to say things like this, that the Spanish Inquisition, which sent thousands of Jews to their deaths, was really morally indifferent. That the Crusades, uh, which enlisted children to send off to war and then were ultimately sold into slavery was a morally indifferent act, that religious intolerance is morally fine. So I think that these examples help to uh, underscore the fact that there really are objective moral values and duties that we recognize when we uh, think about uh, these kinds of situations. So remember the argument isn't that you have to believe in God in order to be moral. That's not the argument. The argument is that you need to have God as an objective transcendent standard for moral value that moves beyond uh, simple human conventions or societal mores. But why do we stray so much? Why do these things oh, happen well, so often, often in the name of God? Right. If you, if you would ask me that as a Christian philosopher, I would begin to talk about Christian doctrine of sin, uh, that we're morally fallen persons, that we're corrupted, uh, and therefore in desperate need of God's moral cleansing and forgiveness and rehabilitation in our lives, and that these moral issues bring to the, the fore our desperate need of God as a moral healer and, and forgiver. And Dr. Kagan, why, why do we violate the social contract so much, whether it's on Wall Street or whether it's in <laughs> Nazi Germany? 
I would talk about sin as well. I mean, the, the vocabulary of sin, though it finds its natural home in religion, isn't limited. I mean, we need a vocabulary to talk about. We need to face the fact that people are not perfectly moral. And it's no doubt some deep truth about our nature that we fail to live up to our moral obligations. You, you can put this fact in some metaphysical terms in terms of original sin. You can put this fact in, in, in naturalistic terms in terms of something about our evolutionary heritage and how we were evolved to uh, favor our kin and our friends. Uh, there's going to be some explanation of it. Anybody who pretends that everything is well with the world is naive. The, the claim that there's objective morality is not, and that perfectly rational beings would agree to its terms and thereby ground or be from the basis of objective reality is not any kind of claim that we are perfectly rational, that we behave perfectly rationally. We're, in, in trivial terms, this is a completely familiar fact. You're on a diet, and uh, uh, the, the piece of chocolate cake calls you from the, from the refrigerator, right? So, so you know you shouldn't do it. You do it anyway. That's what people are like. Interesting question why that's so, but I take it there's no disagreement at all that it's so. And the naturalist, I think, is no more at a handicap in terms of offering explanations of that fact. What about ways of preventing it? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, are there ways of controlling? It's sort of instilling the social contract a little bit better. Well, look, there are a variety of things that uh, people need in order to become moral beings. One is moral education, a topic of tremendous significance, though, again, other than just gesturing its direction, it would take us way too long to say anything helpful about it. How children are brought up so as to have a regard for one another and to recognize that it isn't just a matter of whether you get caught. It isn't just a matter of whether you're going to get punished, but that this is another human being you're dealing with, uh, and as such, you have to have respect for their interests. You know, moral education is, is crucially important. Moral community is crucially important. And not to be naive at all, the, the state is, is crucially important. I mean, I, I, there's certainly one thing that, that Craig's theism provides him that I lack. He has a cosmic enforcer, which provides a kind of motivation that I can't appeal to. So I've got to hope I can assemble materials here on Earth. Although, I, I can't resist taking one little, I'm not sure if it's a pot shot, but at least it's a question uh, about the accountability, uh, which I take it as the thought that evildoers get punished and good doers get a heavenly reward, and so you don't get the bad guys getting into heaven. I'm not quite sure how to reconcile that with the belief that Jesus can provide you know, salvation. Yeah. It seems to me that that is in tension with the notion of accountability we're trying to put forward. Yeah, actually, this gets into really important questions of theology, because on the Christian view, it isn't the bad guys that, that go to hell. The bad guys get into heaven. The bad guys are the ones who recognize their sin, who turn to God in contrition and repentance and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's the self-righteous Pharisees who wind up in hell because they fancy they're so good they don't need God's forgiveness and, and cleansing. So uh, on the Christian view, 
Christ actually is the one who bears the penalty and the payment for sin. The, the wrath of God from God's holy justice is poured out upon Christ so that I don't have to pay the penalty for my sins that I deserve and I can be a beneficiary of his grace. But that does seem that intention with the notion of accountability that you were laying forward where the thought was, unless my doing good has cosmic significance, if it turns out that I can do evil, and as long as I manage to recognize the saving power of Jesus, you know, in time, that, you yeah. know, this accountability stuff's not really, not yeah. really there. Well, I mean, no genuine Christian would think like that. What, what I was trying to communicate there, uh, what I was trying to communicate there is that our moral lives really matter, that they make a difference. For me, the thought that everything perishes in the heat death of the universe, like Russell's credo, you know, yeah. it is so depressing, so awful, but, um, that it, it, it just seems to put a question mark behind everything we do. All our accomplishments, all our deeds just seem so trivial in light of this cosmic doom that awaits yeah. us all. But, but not for me. Yeah. It, it yeah. seems to me... <laughs> It seems to me that I just don't under, it's a if, if I've saved somebody's life, I've done something significant. I've done something important. I've done something whose significance is not in any way threatened, diminished, reduced one iota by the fact that whatever it is, 40 billion years from now, you know, the, the sun will explode. It's, it's neither here nor there. I've saved a human life. That's what matters. And the fact that it doesn't have cosmic significance doesn't seem to me to undermine its significance. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to talk about animals. Animals? Yes. What about our relationship with animals? Do we have a moral obligation to treat animals well, or are they just totally separate from us yeah. uh, in the grand scheme of things? Now, is that a question for me? It's or for both of you. You want to go first? Yeah, yeah well, I think that here, the, the Christian, the theist, has a, a tremendous advantage in terms of developing an environmental ethic and an ethic for the stewardship and care of animals. And it would be based not upon the fact that animals themselves are moral agents who have rights because, as we've said, not being rational beings, they aren't moral agents. So it's not as though the antelope has the right to, to live or something of that sort. But rather, on a Christian view, God has given a stewardship of this beautiful uh, planet to care for it and not to pollute it and ravage it and destroy it. And so I think we have responsibilities toward the animals that would involve um, uh, not just slaughtering them aimlessly, polluting the seas and destroying their environments and so forth, but that we would be like gardeners in a sense, tending a garden uh, in which there are not only uh, vegetable life, but also there would be animal life as well. So I would, I would see this as rooted in the divine responsibilities and mandates given to us uh, to be good stewards of the earth. Are you a vegetarian? No, I'm not. Yeah. So the, the, our stewardship towards animals only goes so far. Right. We, can, we can eat them, we can, we can chop them up and wear them. Yes, yes, I, but, but that would be done in ways that would be, I think, compatible with certain kinds of, of rules. No. That, that, so I'm not sure 
you, you get the advantage, uh, as you put it, in, in that case. So, well, but I mean, a naturalist, what can the naturalist say in the struggle for survival of the fittest? How, how is there any kind of ethic toward behavior toward uh, animals? My view wasn't survival of the fittest. My view was that what morality boils down to is don't harm and do help. And now the question is, can creatures like chickens and cows be harmed? And the answer is, of course they can. Consequently, I think it's immoral to harm them. And that seems to me to provide a very strong moral reason to be a vegetarian, to not wear leather, and the like. So I, I certainly will concede that your view allows for a space for a certain kind of limited responsibility towards the animals. But I, but I beg to differ with the claim that you've got a better handle on that situation than I do. It seems to me that our treatment of animals is morally appalling. It's morally completely unacceptable. And that we ought to radically revise the way we live precisely because they feel pain, they can be hurt, and we're constantly hurting these creatures. Let's talk about the difference between various societies. Uh, how do we explain differences in culture, the treatment of women, the treatment of uh, different races, um, gender, sexualities in various societies, if there is a single god with a single morality, or if there is a social contract standard? Now here I don't think there would be any significant difference between us in the sense that this is a question about moral epistemology, that is to say how we come to a knowledge of the good and the right, rather than a question of moral ontology, which is a question about the objective reality of the good and the right. And I think we would both agree that the objective existence of moral values and duties doesn't imply that these are always easy to grasp or that people infallibly do grasp them uh, given our human proclivity to selfishness so and sinfulness. So certain societies haven't caught up? Yeah, I have absolutely no qualms about being politically incorrect and in saying that certain societies like National Socialist Germany were morally corrupt. And or African or South Africa or... Uh, what about Saudi Arabia? Yeah, and its treatment of women, I think it's, it's appalling. Uh, yeah, I, I think that once you have a transcendent moral standard that transcends culture and society, you're in a position to make the kind of judgments that the court did at Nuremberg in saying that these Nazi leaders were, were war criminals and were justly condemned for what they did. If you lack that transcendent standard, then I think you are faced with the problem of sociocultural relativism. Well, as Craig says, this is, I think, actually a point in which we are in, in large agreement. I might not use the word transcendent uh, here, uh, but I think I agree otherwise with virtually everything he said. So if the question is, what's the explanation of the fact that so many societies have had morally appalling moral codes, the answer, in part, is takes a while for civilization to work its way up to recognize moral truth, just as it takes a while for civilization to work its way up to recognize truths in any other domain. Uh, so I believe in evolution. I believe for, for familiar, I was making a remark like this over dinner, that for familiar evolutionary reasons, 
we were built to uh, think the world moved along roughly Aristotelian lines with regard to physics. It's bad physics, but it's understandable why evolution would select us to think that something like Aristotelian physics was so. Happily, evolution also implanted in us reasoning capacity to step back from the beliefs that it gave us at the ground level and to challenge them and to, to test them. Uh, and so we've worked our way up from Aristotelian physics. And similarly, it takes centuries to work our way up to the point at which we recognize that all people are equal. It takes centuries until we work our way up to the point which we recognize that women count as much as men, blacks count as much as whites, and that animals count too. We'd like you to give some uh, closing statements, just a few words. Wow. Okay. Who's going to go first? Who goes first? Uh, who went first? A little I went first. Why don't you go first? This okay. Um, hmm. I, I didn't prepare a closing statement, so this is just, I'm going to just wing it. Um, I've argued tonight that if God exists, then you do have an objective basis for moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability. And I don't think that that's ever been disputed tonight. The debate has been more about whether naturalism can give you these things. But we haven't really contested that if God exists, then you will have a sound foundation for morality. God's own holy and just nature will be the good and will define the good uh, in, uh, as all things relate to it. His commandments to love him and to love our neighbor as ourselves will furnish grounds for our moral duties and obligations that will be objective and transcultural. And then our lives will have a paramount significance because the moral choices we make really do make a difference. They have eternal consequences. So I think theism is tremendously attractive and would invite you to consider it for yourselves. By contrast, on naturalism, it's hard to see why these creatures we call homo sapiens have intrinsic moral value. This moral contract seems to me to be just a fiction and not really uh, anything more than a social convention that homo sapiens conspire among themselves to fancy themselves valuable. And this is especially evident, I think, on materialism and determinism Whereas I say making a moral decision is no different than a tree growing a branch. It's hard to see how a puppet and its movements can have moral significance. In terms of moral duties, again, without someone to prohibit something or to command something, it's very hard to see how things can be prohibited or commanded. That's very different than the law of contradiction, I think, because the law of contradiction doesn't prescribe behavior. It doesn't say to you, don't contradict yourself. You're free to do that if you want to. It just says, if you do so, you're, you're irrational. But the, the moral duties are giving you prescriptions for behavior, for ways you ought to behave. And it seems to me on atheism that they are just like rules of etiquette. And then finally, moral accountability. I've already talked about that, that um, it, it's hard to see why uh, we should always adopt the moral point of view rather than just act in our own self-interest on atheism since it really doesn't make any difference in the long run. So I would just invite you as students to think deeply about 
whether or not uh, theism um, isn't the better foundation for building your own moral life and, uh, and uh, a career that lies ahead of you. Well, let me start on a note of agreement. Uh, I would want to invite all of you to think uh, as well. Um, I, I don't think the issues that we've been talking about this evening are at all easy uh, or simple. Uh, I, I suppose it's probably obvious that we haven't settled anything here, um, but in, it's important to also point out that we've, we've only begun to address any number of relevant issues. The, this is not the kind of topic that you can do justice to in an hour and a half. At best, it can whet your appetite for, for learning more. Uh, so on the one hand, I want to encourage all of you uh, who haven't taken a class in moral philosophy to take a class uh, in moral philosophy and, and see how some of the great minds uh, through history of Western civilization have, have dealt with some of these issues. Uh, and similarly, I would encourage all of you, theists or not, to uh, um, take classes in religion. Uh, I, I hope I've said nothing this evening to suggest any kind of hostility uh, to religion. Uh, far from it. I, I think it's a, a view worth taking very, very seriously. Um, though I happen to believe that uh, theistic beliefs don't play any essential role uh, in grounding morality. Now, I, I sketched a view uh, according to which there is morality, it's an objective fact in as, as robust a sense uh, as it seems to me one might like, uh, that morality is real and genuine, and I tried to lay out uh, the, at least the rough outline of how that view might go. It, it seems to me that one essential point of disagreement uh, between Craig and me is, is, is uh, uh, something that uh, I, I asked about se several times. It's, it's this move, what to my mind is the move from the thought that uh, without theism, then our actions don't have eternal cosmic significance to the conclusion that, therefore, without theism, our actions don't have significance, objective moral significance. That just seems to me to be a mistake. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that uh, if I love somebody, the, 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 the reality of that loving relationship is valuable, of real value, of genuine objective value, and it's not in any way threatened by the fact that I will die, my wife will die, my children will die, and eventually the universe will come to an end. Uh, the fact that billions and billions of years from now, it's all going to be the same, doesn't mean it's all the same now. I certainly want to concede that if you're looking for this kind of cosmic significance, atheism's not going to provide it for you. But that wasn't the subject of tonight's debate. The subject of tonight's debate was whether you needed that kind of cosmic significance to have morality. And on that issue, I'm quite confident the answer is no. Thank you all very much. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.